We love you, Jesus, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're, we're in 1 Corinthians still. By the way, after today we'll be halfway through, because we'll be through chapter 8, which is, is great. If you're reading ahead, you'll see that we're halfway through after today. But what we're going to see again today is this, this continued attack on the church by Satan. Satan hates the church, and we've seen all kinds of attacks that have been going on within the church in Corinth. We've been seeing this, bat- <clears throat> excuse me, this battle between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Uh, Satan's coming in the church and trying to get people to, to lean on their own understanding and build their lives around worldly things and worldly beliefs. And God's coming at them and saying, no, this, the way of God is very different than the way of the world. And so there's this battle within the church of worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. The other attack was where? Marriages. Marriage is the first, the home, the home is the first place of ministry. So Satan is also attacking this issue of marriages. You know, should we stay married? Should we all become single? Should we stay celibate? Should there be intimacy within the marriage? All these problems within the marriage. He's trying to bring division within the church. Then he also was attacking their identity. You should be circumcised. No, you should be uncircumcised. Uh, You should be a slave. You should be free. And all these worldly identities. He's trying to create divisions and deceptions within, within the body of believers. And by the way, brothers and sisters, nothing's changed. We don't have the same, the same culture, but we have the same, uh, the same weapons that he uses against us to deceive us and to try to break the church apart. So that's what's going on, and we're going to see another one today as we go into chapter 8 of, of 1 Corinthians. And this topic today is he, try to use, he tries to use Christian liberty, Christian liberty to divide the church. I, you know, it's, it's amazing to me as I read this and study this that at the beginning of the foundation of church, they had this issue of Christian liberty as well as a divisive, deceptive uh, attack on the church as we have it today. Uh, Christian liberty is uh, something that is debated still very much in the church and creates a lot of division in the church. So what is Christian liberty? Okay, thank you, Chandler. Let me give you this definition. Christian liberty are those things in life that are not specifically prohibited within Scripture. So you, like you said, it would be our freedoms, the things that the Word does not call out that we are still free to embrace. Are you with me on this? That's what Christian liberties are. Now, we know that the Word of God is pretty clear about most of life, right? We have things like the Ten Commandments to guide us, Worship no other gods. Uh, don't misuse the name of the Lord. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal or lie. We're commanded to worship God. We're commanded to pray without ceasing. We're commanded to pray to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We're commanded to train and instruct our children the way they should go. And of course, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that law itself is the one that overhangs everything else. Everything else falls underneath this command to love God and to love our neighbor. It's important you remember this as we get into Christian liberty. So we've got all these things we've commanded to do and not to do within the word of God, but Christian liberty are those things that scripture is not very clear about. For example, I'll bring up some of the big ones within the church. It is a sin to be drunk on alcohol, but it's not a sin to have a drink. 
It's a, it's a Christian liberty. You may have a drink. Some may. Can people smoke cigars? What kind of music can people listen to? What kind of movies can people listen to? Can people play video games? Is it okay to enjoy a, a, a lavish meal? Is it okay to have a nice car and nice clothes? What, 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 what are these things allowed by God? What, what is God? How does God view these things in the, in the life of a Christian? And these are what they call Christian liberties. Things that Scripture does not specifically prohibit. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But let me just clear up a few deceptions within this Christian liberty with a few scripture here for you. And I would say that first one is John believed him, Jesus said within the tree. What he's talking about Christian liberties, but that is not what this verse talks about. This verse talks about the real freedom that Christ brings into our life is knowing and obeying the word of God. This, this verse couldn't be any clearer. If you really want to embrace freedom in this life, you need to know and obey the word of God. Because see, if we know and obey the word of God, it'll free us up from the deceptions of Satan. It'll free us up from the deceptions of the world. And it'll free us up from the deceptions of our own unredeemed flesh. That's where freedom is found. Freedom is found when we, we are no longer deceived and enslaved by Satan, the world, and our own flesh. So he says, true freedom for a Christian is one that knows and obeys the word of God. The second verse is also used sometimes for Christian liberty, which is, now the Lord is the spirit. The Lord is the text of this that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell within us, and the Holy Spirit wants to lead us into a righteous life. So, if you want to live a righteous life, the Spirit has freed us up from coming under the law of God, and now we come under the power of the Spirit of God. It's the, the Spirit we're living under grace, not law. And the Holy Spirit, as we study, read, and, and meditate on the word of God, the Holy Spirit lives within us and wants to live us, lead us into a righteous life. That's where freedom is. Freedom is found in a righteous life. Amen? Amen. So that's true freedom. It's, this has nothing to do with Christian liberty. And Galatians 5.1, for, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, of slavery. Yourself back under the law but to live by grace through the Word of God. Let me also set this up with this truth, is that, and we've seen this many times as we've studied the Word of God together, that Satan loves to create extreme positions within the doctrines of God. Have you noticed that? If he creates extreme positions, he can get the church to be divided. He can create divisions within the church. And this is also true about Christian liberty. See, there's some extreme, uh, extreme Christian liberty pushes within different churches. And what happens when you have an extreme view on Christian liberty, you're really focused on grace alone versus grace and truth. And, and so what happens is they embrace everything they can find that's not noted in Scripture. And, and they're, 
their, their conscience is clear and they think if my conscience is clear, I can engage in these activities. And that's exactly what we're going to see is going on in Corinth, but it's going on in our, in our time too, believe me. And what happens when you have this extreme Christian liberty where you're embracing everything you can and enjoying everything in the world and saying my conscience is clear and, I, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just practicing my Christian liberties, it often leads them into idolatry. And really one of the idolatries they go into is the idolatry becomes this Christian liberty in itself. They're always talking about it. They're very dogmatic about Christian liberty and what we can do, what we have the freedom to do. And what happens, which they don't see, is actually they become enslaved not only to the idolatry of Christian liberty, but also the things they're practicing they become enslaved to. Because it becomes more important than living the righteous life for God. Sadly, their life is focused on the ways of the world over the ways of God. They don't experience the blessings of living a righteous life. And really, they they talk about freedom, but they're in a slavery of Christian liberty on the extreme scale. Does that make sense? The other extreme is Christian legalism. And and they, they see all things as good or evil. There is no gray. They don't really believe in Christian liberty. They, they, make and live, they make and live by exhaustive lists of do's and don'ts. And like the Pharisees, whenever they come across a gray area, which would be called a Christian liberty, they create their own rules and laws to overcome those things. And sadly, these people too live apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. They don't experience the wonderful life that God has for them. And they too are enslaved and don't experience the freedom of God. So that's a little setup for it. Now let's get into the scripture for this morning. If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to work through the whole chapter here this morning. It should only take us two or three hours. And Charles will read the word for us this morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. About eating, but for so called gods, whether in heaven, many gods, one God, the Father, whom all we live, Lord Jesus Christ, through whom. Still, so accountable, having been sacrificed to God, we are not the exercise of your rights does not become. When you sin against them, you therefore 
For if what I eat comes to I will never so that Let me give you a little historical context here so we understand what's going on in Corinth. So he says now about food sacrificed idols. Now the Greeks and Romans were polytheistic cultures. They, they had a god or a goddess for every application of life. That's polytheistic, multiple gods. So they have a god for war, they have a goddess for love, they, have a, they even have a god for travel. If you're going on a trip, you should go pray to this god. They had gods and goddesses for every application of life. And if you could picture Corinth, this hustling, bustling city, and these, some of them were just monuments, but throughout the city they had all these places where all these gods and goddesses were located. Some were obviously large temples, uh, especially the popular gods where they would do this animal sacrifice we're going to talk about today. But the point is the people had a god or goddess for anything. What they were doing, they would go see this god or goddess and pray to it. And, and we know from First Corinthians, I mean, from the book of Acts, that Paul uh, t- found the, the unknown God. So they thought they had a God or goddess for everything, but just in case they didn't, they had the unknown God, so you could go with those specific requests to those gods. So that's what's going on. They had all these gods. And see, these big temples where they would sacrifice animals were, were family gatherings. This is where you would have weddings and feasts and birthday parties, and you'd bring your animal and have it sacrificed, and they had dining halls. And people would all eat their meals in there. This is what the Corinthians grew up on. This was the place you went to feast and celebrate everything in your family life. And when they sacrificed an animal, it was broken into three parts. One part was for the, to be sacrificed to the god. The other part would go to the priest as payment for the sacrifice. And the third part would go to the family, which they would go in these dining halls and they would have celebrations with. But also in the marketplace, the people could buy meat that was sacrificed to these false gods. Because the priest, that was their profit center. They couldn't eat everything they took in as payment, so they would sell it in the marketplace. So you got that. The other aspect of this culture, the Romans and the Greeks, is they were also polydemonic. They believed demons filled the air. They felt the whole air was full of demons. And what they believed is the demons would get into the food, and then when you ate the food, you would be possessed by a demon. So when they sacrificed these meats to these false gods, they had, two, they had two outcomes. One is they feel they appeased these false gods by the sacrifice, but also they, dro- they drove out the demons from the food so they were free to eat it. Now I tell you all that because that was the culture from generation to generation. And so for them to eat meat that wasn't sacrificed to a false god, they were uneasy. They felt they might get possessed even though they believed in, in the one God. So that's kind of a setting with what's going on. So you have this, this Greek-Roman culture with these beliefs, but who else is in part of this church? The Jews. What, what did the Jews believe about food? Kosher. It couldn't be sacrificed to idols. And, and, so, and even though we saw that change with the new covenant as Peter was on the rooftop and God says, you can eat all this now, that's still from generation to generation, you know, I'm going to stick to kosher. I don't feel comfortable with this. My grandfather, my father, and so on. So you got this Jewish culture with all these uh, 
dietary rites, and, and you've got the Greeks and the Romans with their, their, their idolatry to, to, to idols for many reasons. And that's kind of the picture here of what's going on in the church in Corinth, and Satan's taking advantage of that. So this, this is a letter that they wrote to Paul, and they're saying, what, what can we do about this? What is permissible? What is our Christian liberty as it comes to food that is sacrificed to idols? You got the picture? Okay. So they start off with this. This is a direct quote from their letter to Paul. He says, we know that we possess knowledge. Do you see that? We possess knowledge. It's in quotations because it comes right from their letter to Paul. And, and it's a quote, by the way, from those who believed it was acceptable to eat meat sacrificed to idols. It was acceptable to family gatherings in these temple dining halls. They saw not, no problem with it. But this statement also reflects their arrogance and the pride. It says we all possess knowledge. In a way, they're saying to Paul, we don't need your input. It's a simple truth that everyone should grasp. We have enough knowledge from God's word and the leading of the Holy Spirit to realize that pagan gods and goddesses don't exist. And we realize that these idols are nothing but wood and stone and have no power. We see this. We also realize there is but one God and one Lord. We know this truth. We don't need your input, Paul. It's very obvious to us. Therefore, the food sacrificed to them is nothing. It has no spiritual significance, and there's no reason we can't continue to eat this meat that has been sacrificed to the idols. And I'm sure there was some saying, and by the way, where do you think we're witnessing to the lost? It's at these, these dining halls. We're sharing the gospel with all lost family and friends. It's a great opportunity for ministry. That's not in the Word of God, but I believe they, they were doing those things. Their conscience was clear. Come on, Batman. I felt like that this morning, too. A couple good cups of coffee got me out of it. But so then Paul responds to them. So, so you heard their doctrinal position. They're making a doctrinal statement to them of why they feel it's okay to eat this meat. Uh, sacrificed to idols because idols are nothing but wood and stone and there's only one God. But here's what Paul responds to. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Now would we believe in sound lives as the word of God to meditate on the word day and night. He says that we'll be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we should know the truth and truth will set us free. He says that this whole growth in the Christian life comes out of our intimacy with Jesus Christ. He, he was big on doctrine. He was big on building our life on the Word of God. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying that what you're missing is that knowledge apart from love only leads to pride and arrogance. Knowledge alone leads to pride and arrogance. It has to be founded in love. And what he's reminding them of is the greatest commandment. That you, you, you've got this knowledge and you've got this doctrine position, and we'll see that Paul agrees with it, but he's saying... Over that position, over those truths, you have to put the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He said, you're missing that. He said, you've got good knowledge, but you're just being filled with pride. It's puffing you up, and love builds up. Knowledge builds up when it's, with our knowledge when it's founded in love. 
And then verse 2, he says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to. And what he's in the word of God, yet you act and you act like you know everything, but you don't know the word as you need to because you don't know, fully understand the ways of God. You're missing the big picture here. Brothers and sisters, real maturity, I've, I've met many who can quote endless scripture that they've memorized. They have a lot of knowledge, but they don't understand the love of God. They, they don't have an intimate relationship with God. See, the motivation for the Christian life is not knowing the word of God. It's loving God, and therefore that drives you to obey the word of God. It's, obedience comes from love. Knowledge alone will not, will not save you from falling back into sin. Knowledge of God's word will not save you from falling back into slavery. It is the love of God, the, the motivation, combined with the word of God, leads to a righteous life. And, and you can tell that these men and many people that even come to this church over our history, is, is they're missing it because there's a pride element in there. You see... Let me tell you this, and I know you know this, most of you, but the longer you walk with God, the more you know the Word of God, the more humble you become. That's an indication of the fruit of a saved person. The Word of God and the love of God humbles us. I mean, Tyler, Pastor Tyler and I, we, we, were, we talk about our studies, and we realize that after 30 or 40 hours of studying these verses this week, I don't really know that much. I wish I had another 30 or 40 years to spend on chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. It's that deep. It's that complicated. It's, it's that significant. So, so the reality is if you're truly a born-again believer, it's not the knowledge that's going to save you. It's the love of God with the Word of God. Are you with me on this? And an evidence of that is are you growing in humility? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The word of God came down at number four of that list. It's humility and brokenness and love of God that builds us up. And that's what Paul's trying to get through to these, to these new, uh, mature, these are mature believers within the Corinthian church. So he goes on here, stay with me, this is, Get to some good application here. It says, so, so then, about eating food to idols, we know that, again, a quote from their, their letter to Paul, an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. Doctrinal statements, doctrinal statements. It's good theology. And they're, they're just saying that since, since idols are nothing in the world and there's one true God, then there's no problem eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. That's their argument they're presenting to, to the Apostle Paul. Is what they say true? Yes, it is true. And he continues, says, for even if they're so-called gods, called gods, whether in heaven or earth, lords, there's but one God, the Father, all things came and from live, and the Jesus Christ from all things came and lived. But 
so listen to this. I want to make sure you understand what he's saying. He's so-called God. He's saying these gods exist in the minds of the Corinthians. They believe they're real. And he says, but we know, we know, those who believe, we know there's only one true God. So what you're saying is doctrinally correct, but you don't realize that the Corinthians believe these gods exist. In their minds they do. Paul's trying to tell them. They still believe they exist. Even the new believers within the church still believe that they exist. But the problem, and what they're saying is right, because all these false gods are nothing but wood and stone. And even if we look at Satan with all his power, is not a god. Because he has no divinity. He's a created being. He only has the power that God gave to him, and he's God's devil. So there is no other gods, real gods, except God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's sad in our day we see so many people living in fear and worry, COVID, stress, life, sickness. Beloved, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Nothing will happen to you without God's permission. He is in control of every molecule, of every person. He's in control of COVID. He's in, nothing, there's nothing to fear. If you, if God is in control of all things. Amen. He knows when a sparrow falls from a tree. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows what's, when you get up in the morning, he knows what your day is going to happen in your day before you do. And he wants to help prepare you for it, by the way. That's why we should be in the Word in the morning. But we should have no worry or fear. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, present your request to God, and the peace of God will surpass all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds. So I just, that's what he's saying is God is sovereign. We know that. But, and so Paul, just back to the text, Paul's agreeing with their doctrinal statements. Idols are nothing. They have no power. They have no divinity. They're stone and wood. And you are right. There is one God the Father, one God the Son, and one God the Spirit. He's agreeing with them. But look what he says next here. He says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. See, he's getting... Everyone possesses this knowledge. Yeah, your doctrine is correct. In every church then and every church now, there's always mature believers, there's new believers, there's people with a strong faith, and there's people with weak faith in the church. Amen? That's what he's saying. He said, yeah, you got this. You got this doctrinal position. And you're right. You have the Christian liberty to do these things. But stop for a minute because not everyone possesses this knowledge. And look what he says. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they They still believe these God. Here's the picture. These are new believers in the church or people with weak faith. They still think that these gods exist. They think when they eat the sacrificed meat, they're worshiping these false gods that exist in their mind. And what they would say to you, well, I believe there's one good God, but there's a lot of bad gods. So they would eat this meat, and in their minds and their conscience, they just worshiped a false god and betrayed Jesus Christ. And that's what he's telling them. He goes, they still believe it's worship. They still believe in these and these false idols. 
And he says, by doing this, by, by, by them going and eating this meat sacrificed to gods, their conscience is weak, and so their conscience is defiled. Do you see that? What is a defiled conscience? We've all had it. We've all experienced it. A defiled conscience is when, you know, we've getting those red flags, those warning signals, don't do this, don't go there, don't eat this, don't drink that. Are you with me on this? The conscience is screaming with inside of us, don't do this. Don't go with them. Have you been there? It's defiled when we fight against it. We, we don't listen to it. We push it away. And that's what he's saying to them is, you're, you're, you're leading these people astray and they're defiling their conscience. They're eating meat when, they, when they're, they know in their heart, they believe in their heart it's wrong. And by the way, for Christians, we know this too, that we're given this great gift of our conscience. And when we fight against it, the first time it's very difficult. We're overwhelmed with guilt and remorse, right? But that, and that's called... It's called grieving the Holy Spirit as a believer. But as we, if we continue to act in those sinful activities, what happens? Gets easier, Kevin. Because we quench the Holy Spirit. And you've all been there, haven't you? Where you, you were engaging some, some sinful activity and at first it was like, oh, this doesn't feel good, I'm afraid, it just doesn't... But the tenth time, it was very easy. Are you with me on this? And see, this is what's called the downward spiral in life. As you continue to fight against your conscience, and now you're enslaved to one thing, and actually you're comfortable in this sin now because your conscience is no longer convicting you, then Satan will bring another sin into that fold. At first, that sin will be difficult too, but as, as you continue to repeat that sin, that one becomes comfortable too. And what's happening, it starts with a foothold. He's building a fortress within you. He's taking you over with more and more sinful behaviors in your lifestyle. Can anyone agree? see that in their own lives? That's how Satan works in us. He gets in there, he builds, we get comfortable, and, and then we move on to the next thing. Now let me just hang here for a couple minutes. Because God's conscience that he's given us is a beautiful gift. It's a beautiful gift that he's given us, and it's especially a beautiful gift for new believers. He's given it to us. The, the, the analogy I can make is when, when you have small children, uh, you know, they don't know knives are sharp. They don't know stoves are hot. They don't know they shouldn't play in traffic. And parents have to protect them. Well, new believers in Christ, their conscience is God's gift to help protect you from falling into your own sinful behaviors uh, before you have the foundation of the Word of God. Are you with me on this? So the conscience comes into us and says, I'm sure when you were first saved, my conscience was working overtime. I didn't know the word that well. So it's saying, you, you, you can't be involved with these people anymore. You need to break off these relationships. You can't go to those places you used to go to. You're going to fall back into sin. You, you can't eat this. You can't drink that. You can't do that anymore. The conscience was telling me to, to run from those things. And it was protecting me because, see, I didn't have a foundation of the word of God. Now, what happens for most believers as we continue to study the Word and pray through the Word and meditate on the Word, we build up a, a fortress of God's Word in our lives where we can enter into some of these situations where we once couldn't as new believers. Right? right? So, so that's what happens. Now, I would say a couple warnings on that. 
I think for every believer, there's always going to be a weakness or two that they will never be able to enter back into that. For some of you, it's drinking, it's drugs, it's lust, it's whatever. There's just certain areas in your life you just can never play around with again. God delivered you from it, and you can't go back to it. And so I would say that's true for even mature believers. There's always that thorn in the flesh that we can't go back. And the conscience reminds us, but we also have the Word of God that says, I can't go back to that area because it's, it's too destructive in my lifestyle, and I'm afraid it's going to get a hold of me again. So, so the conscience protects us, and, and we have to listen to it. We have to obey it and not go into these areas. I'll stay here a little longer. Because, because here's what I've seen. I'm just going to give you some illustrations because... I've seen, let's talk about the missions. Uh, we'll talk about the mission life. I've seen where there's men and women, you know, they're, they're really desiring to live the new life. They've recently come to Christ, and then they have a friend in the mission. Are you with me on this one? They have a friend in the mission, and they say, hey, let's go for a walk, or let's go for a ride, or let's go do this or that. And their conscience is screaming at them, don't go. Don't go with this guy. Don't go with this gal. And they fight against it, and they go. And what happens? The person pulls something out of their pocket. They take them over and pick up a cord at the liquor store. And they should have listened to their conscience. They shouldn't have gone. But see, they, that battle begins. They say, you know what? He's not a bad guy. She's not a bad gal. You know, it won't be that bad. They seem like they're godly people, I feel. But the conscience is telling you don't go. And you're, you're fighting against it. And you're trying to create reasons why you should do these things when you know inside you should not. Listen to your conscience. So that happens in the mission. Other people that you might be invited over to a friend's house or something, they want to show you a movie. And for them, it's okay to watch this movie. But you know if you watch this movie, it may elicit some things in your heart that you don't want to happen, right? It may elicit lust. It may elicit anger. Whatever it is. And so you're, they're, they're going to show you a movie, and, and you don't want to seem like a weak Christian, but you have to listen to your conscience. See, I can't watch that. I can't do it. Why don't we just talk? So I've seen it with movies. I've seen it at the mission with people leading astray. I've, I've seen it with listening to unchristian music. It's a trigger for some people. And, and so you have to listen to your conscience and don't engage in these activities for, for uh, the conscience is there to protect you until you build up the foundation of the Word of God. So Paul goes back. He says, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Doctrinal position. The third statement, he agrees with what they said. And then he, he rebukes them again with this. He says, be careful, however, the exercise of your right. Don't let your rights rule over your love for your brothers and sisters. You know, you, a good thing is maybe to ask them some questions. Is Are you okay with this? Can we, can we do this? Can we watch this? Can we make sure your brother and sister's hearts are okay with what you, what you may be easy for you may not be easy for them. So, because look what it says here for. If someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge... Eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to the idols? Do you see that? The picture here is 
the brothers and sisters, you know, they're all in the church together and they go off and, and these weak or new believers are, are walking around town and all of a sudden up at the big temple, they see the elders of the church all at a table together eating meat sacrificed to idols. And they say, well, the elders can eat this. Their conscience is saying, don't eat it. They're still believing in these gods. But if the elders are doing it, Satan's whispering in your ear, oh, if the elders are doing it, of course you can do it. Don't be a weak Christian. Get up there and join them with the meat. They're emboldened by seeing you do something in your Christian liberty that they're not prepared to do yet. So they go up and they eat the meat. And then they're overwhelmed with a guilty conscience, believing they worship false gods. And it says here, they were destroyed by your knowledge. Do you see that? Because what happens, as we all know, brothers and sisters, is that after they eat the meat, now they're torn you know, maybe we should continue to worship these false gods to appease them while we worship the one true God. And that now they're starting to go down that spiral. You know, as I mentioned before, someone comes to the mission, takes you for a walk, and you stop and get a quart. That person may go back to the mission to be fine. They could drink one quart. Or maybe you can't drink one quart. Maybe you need 15 quarts. You never make it back to the mission and you're kicked out. Right? That's the point here. Don't let your knowledge, some of you could have a drink. Some of you could watch a movie. Some of you could listen to different music, but others cannot. And by you bringing people into that environment, you may lead them into falling into the downward spiral of deeper and deeper sin. Does that make sense? That's what's going on here in Corinth. So he's saying your, your Christian liberty, your right doctrine has destroyed your brother or sister in Christ who Christ died for. Christ died for them, and you've, and you've destroyed them by practicing this, this thing called Christian liberty. Yeah. So I'll just encourage you again, brothers and sisters, listen to your conscience. Listen to it, listen to it, listen to it, listen to it. One other one I have on my list here that I forgot, which is food. We talk about the permissible sin in the church of food. Some people have problems with food. Do you know that? You know, some of you can eat a donut. But for someone else, a donut leads to... <laughs> How many? 20. 20, okay. Leads to 20 donuts. Whoa. Okay, but it's, I mean, we can laugh about it because it's almost a permissible sin in the church, but, you know, I know people, they're dear brothers and sisters, when they get that sugar thing going, man, they just can't shut it down. They can't have a chocolate sundae. They have the chocolate sundae, but that's just the appetizer to what happens in secret in, in the darkness of their own home afterwards. They eat a whole pie. They eat a, they eat a, a whole thing of ice cream. And, so, and other people in this church have health problems. Don't be biting them out to eat bad food, right? There's a responsibility there. Don't be a stumbling block to a brother and sister who may have trouble with food. And so it's just, it's just an issue. So it says here, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So who sins, who's guilty of sin here in this situation? The strong one, Kevin, the strong one, the mature one, the one that has good doctrine, the one that 
they, they, were, they were exercising their Christian liberty. He says, you're the one that will come before the Bema seat and have to pay the, the penalty for what you did. For It was your sin, not theirs, as you led them astray. And then Paul just makes sure we understand the seriousness of this. He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall in sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. He goes, this is how serious it is. Your, your, your love for your brother and sister has to override your Christian liberty. So you, you may never be able to eat a chocolate sundae in public again. You may never be able to have a, a drink of wine again. You may never be able to watch certain movies again with your brothers and sisters. And he says, whatever it is that may cause them to stumble, you have to turn away from that for your love of God and your love for your brothers and sisters. He's not saying we all have to be vegetarians, by the way. Thank God for that. So let me just close with this. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And I've given you a list in your handout. I've got one here. Just review this with you. These are good questions to ask yourself when you're, you're looking at embracing some of your Christian liberties. First of all, is this activity, this thing that you are free to do, is it necessary? Do I need this or can I do without it? And the reason we start off with this question is because what you think your Christian liberty is may have become an idol in your own life. So is this necessary? Do I need this? I'm going to stay with food for right now. Do I need this chocolate sundae? Is it absolutely required? What, what, what's, the, what's going on with this? Has it become an idol? And by the way, I think in all of our lives... It doesn't take long for a Christian liberty to become a habit. Now, one of mine, I'll share with you a confession, is Wednesday nights after Bible study, I would love to have a pizza. And I would tell myself, it's a frozen pizza, I would cook it at home, but, it, you know, it was a good pizza. <laughs> and I would say, you know, I've worked hard, it's Wednesday night, I made it through Bible study. When I get home then at 8 o'clock, that pizza oven's going on, that pizza's going in. But then I realized, you know what? It's become an idol. And by the way, that Sunday in the Bible study, <laughs> I'm already with the pizza. <laughs> so it has become an idol. So I just, we have to examine these things. And what I try to do, and my family does, is a lot of times I just cut things out that are Christian liberties in my life just to make sure they haven't become idols for a while. And so, is it necessary? The second question, is it profitable? How will this profit me and others if I, if I engage in this Christian liberty? An example, is it the right example for all? Or this, would this maybe a stumbling block for someone? If I eat this, drink this, do this, think this. What about my testimony? Will this help or hurt my testimony if someone sees me doing this? Are you with me on that? Is it edifying? Is there anything good that's going to come out of this Christian liberty? It's going to build me up in some way or build others up? And lastly, is this Christian liberty going to bring glory and honor to God? That's just a good list to, to run through as we uh, debate our Christian liberties. I think the verse that really sits well with me is Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Our, our focus is set our hearts and minds on things above, not on things on the earth. Don't get all caught up in your Christian liberties. True freedom is found only through 
knowing and obeying the word of God through living by the power of the Holy Spirit and not be living under the law again.